Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We'll begin reading in verse 11. Luke 19, verse 11. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, to whom he had given the money, be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down, and reap what you did not sow." He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be very near to us now, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, that you would give me great freedom as I preach, that you would fill me with boldness and truth and love. Father, help us all, convict us of sin, convict us of righteousness, convict us of judgment. Father, draw us near to Christ, strengthen us to obey you, give us faith and repentance, we pray. Help us especially, Father, to give ourselves wholly to the work of building your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't think... um, We're continuing this morning in uh, our study of Jesus' parables, and I want to start by saying I don't think that many of the parables Jesus told are one-offs. Do you know what I mean when I say that? I mean, I don't think that many of them were uh, made up on the spot and given only one time. I think that it's certainly possible Jesus thought of parables and delivered them on the spot, off the cuff. He probably did sometimes, but I think he, like any good preacher, had a a stash of illustrations that he used over and over and over again. And we started to tell the story 
his disciples who had heard it, they knew the story, right? We have that. All, your, all of us, your pastors, have that. We have our stories. If Tim Bailey were up here and he were to begin saying, when I was at UW-Madison, you can, you know, depending on where he goes, you know what the story is going to be. And he'll, he's going to tell it to you different than he told it the last thousand times, right? And he's going to make the same points with it, but you're going to know what the story is, right? So, <laughs> I, I won't do it. <laughs> um, so if he says, when I was at UW-Madison, you know that if he says, when I was at UW-Madison, I had a professor who, you know what that story is. And if he says, our college president was, you know what that story is going to be. I think... Um, Jesus was like that. I think he was like any good preacher. Any grandfather worth his salt's the same way. He has his stories he keeps in his back pocket to tell his grandchildren over and over and over again. The Gospels themselves are kind of like this, right? They tell the same story of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ in four different ways. And this morning's parable is kind of like that. It's the parable of the ten minas. And it's about a master who leaves some money with some slaves and goes away and comes back. And one of the slaves didn't do anything and gets punished. And you probably know that basic storyline better as the parable of... Maybe you don't know that storyline. The talents, thank you. The parable of the talents. Now, some people get tied up in knots because Luke records this parable being told at Zacchaeus' house in Jericho before Jesus goes to Jerusalem. And then Matthew tells it after he goes to the Mount of Olives, past Jericho, and he's already come to Jerusalem. And then gasp, the stories are different. One's talents, one's minas, one's ten slaves, one's three. One time he gives them the same amount, another time he gives them three different amounts. And isn't that a contradiction? And does that mean that Scripture is not inspired? And I feel... Silly to have to tell you that the answer to that question is, of course, no. And he just, he's a man, he's a preacher. He's told the story probably a couple more times than we have recorded. <clears throat> he told it at least twice. He told it a different way each time. Big deal. Uh, this telling is different than the version most of us are most familiar with. And so, First, we're going to work through it verse by verse and make sure we catch the details, and then we're going to come back and we're going to apply it. So we'll begin in verse 1, which says this. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Okay, who was listening to what things? What's the context here? Well, I already told you, they're in Jericho. They're at Zacchaeus' house. Jesus is there because he's bringing salvation to Zacchaeus' house. What they were listening to is Jesus saying, he too is a son of Abraham. Salvation has come to this house today. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Jesus is there because he's passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. He started heading toward Jerusalem in Luke 17. Now, lots of different things have happened on his journey to Jerusalem, and it's quickly coming to a close. He's done some big, miraculous stuff. He's cleansed ten lepers. He's healed a blind man. People are getting excited. Crowds are gathering. People are following him in. And very soon, it's going to be Palm Sunday. It's going to be 
the triumphal entry. So there's a mass gathering and there's anticipation that Jesus is coming and he's building his kingdom and he's been teaching his disciples about the kingdom. In fact, he's told his disciples that the kingdom has come. It is among you. It is in your midst. That's what he says at the outset of his trip to Jerusalem. And he tells them that what that means is that he's going to suffer and die at Jerusalem. And he makes it very clear, this is all going to happen. We're going to Jerusalem. It's going to happen. I'm going to be delivered up. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die at Jerusalem, where we're headed now. Three times he tells them this, and they don't get it. What they heard was that the kingdom was in their midst, and so they interpret it as though the kingdom was come in its fullness, that Jesus was going to conquer the Romans or take over the world or be visibly the conquering king in Jerusalem. They didn't get it. They thought he was going to crush the Romans. So as they prepare to make the last stand of their journey from Jericho to Jerusalem, sitting down in Zacchaeus' house, probably around a meal, he tells them this story. A nobleman went into a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Now, this part of the parable, uh, the reason this parable I don't think gets preached as much as the one about the talents is because it has this whole thing about a kingdom and cities, and it seems really weird and strange to us, and the post-millennialists in our midst think, yes, cities, that's what we're talking about, but... um, In those days, it was not an uncommon thing at all for a noble or an official of some kind to take a trip to Rome and receive a kingdom. Herod the Great became the king of the Jews when he left Judea and went to Rome and stood before the Senate and politicked his way into being proclaimed king of the Jews. Then he came back to Judea and said, here are my papers, here's my crown, I'm now your king. Those hearing this parable would have understood it this way. They would have understood this kind of thing. Very likely, those hearing Jesus tell the story would have thought immediately of Herod and of Herod's sons, who also had to go when Herod died to Rome and appeal for their right to rule. And Caesar at that time divided the kingdom up a little bit, did some weird things. That's just the kind of thing you did in the outer regions and provinces of the ancient Roman Empire if you were a nobleman of political influence and you wanted to advance in the world. That's the way that the politics worked. So the nobleman's seeking to become king of the land he lives in and the region around it. He's going away and he's going to come back. So the next verse, And he called ten of his slaves and he gave them ten minas and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. Now mina was roughly worth about three months' wages for a laborer. So to keep the math easy, we'll say that's about $10,000. It gives them an income about $40,000 a year for a laborer. The master was going to be gone. They were going to be responsible to take that money and to put it to work building his wealth, building his kingdom. It was a command. It was a task. It was an obligation. They were obligated to perform it, and it was clear. Do business until I come back. Build my kingdom. Build wealth for me while I'm gone. Next verse. But his citizens hated him 
and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. They knew he was petitioning to be named king or that he had been summoned to be declared king and they didn't like it. They hated the master. They hated the nobleman. So they sent a delegation after him, presumably to Rome, making it clear to Caesar or the Senate where they stood. We don't want this man to rule over us. Do not give this man the kingdom. If those hearing the story thought of Herod and his sons, they would have been sympathetic to the delegation. Herod was a wicked king. His sons were wicked kings. This kind of thing, too, probably also happened quite a bit. Don't make this man king, please, please. But in the parable, what does it do to the slaves of the nobleman? How does it affect them? That the citizens of the land don't want their master to be their king, that they hate their master. How does it impact them? They've been given work to do. They've been given a job, a job to build his kingdom, to build his wealth in his absence. And here we find out that all of the citizens of the region hate him. Don't want him to be their king. How would that affect you? Would it make it easy for you to go out into the marketplace and invest yourself? Invest the money he's given you. Invest his gifts. Build his kingdom. I'm here representing the nobleman who's becoming king. I want to buy your land. Does it make it easy? (laughs) Makes it hard, right? It has to make it very hard. If their master is gone and the citizenry is rebellious, how easy is it going to be for them to put that money to work and earn a return? It might be hard enough just to show their faces in the marketplace. Remember how volatile a time this is. Remember how easy it was for the mob to sweep cities into utter chaos. Happened all the time. Jesus is depicting a hostile environment here for his servants, his slaves, to work in. In a hostile environment, the ability to make a return on your investment depends on the willingness of others to do business with you at a fair price and your willingness to take the risk and convince people to do business with you. Because of the prevailing attitude in the community, it's likely these slaves would have been despised for their loyalty to their master and despised for any willingness they showed to build his kingdom and to make him prosper. He was the bad guy. There were competing interests. The point is that the hostility makes it difficult for the slaves even to want to try to make a return on the investment. Are you with me so far? Okay. Now, let's keep moving through the text. When he returned... After receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. So he's come back. He's got the kingdom and he's calling his servants to an account, to give an account. The first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave. Because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you're to be in authority over ten cities. The second came saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. So the master returns. He's received his kingdom. 
It's established, and he's called his slaves to give an account, and the first slave has invested his mina, his $10,000, and he's made a return of $100,000 on that $10,000 investment. Pretty good work, right? That's a pretty big return. Have you ever made that big a return, Doug? Why are we all investing with you for? I don't. Yeah, that's that's the question. How long was he gone? $100,000 on the $10,000. It's crazy. It must have required a lot of work, right? Uh, The second slave comes. He's brought in $50,000. That's huge. It's a big deal. So the master comes, and he sets them over cities in his new kingdom. Now, again, that seems weird and exotic to us, but again, it's not. This is just normal. This is how things worked in the ancient world. Historically, it's not weird. It wasn't uncommon for a newly crowned king to come back and to set some of his slaves over the cities that he's acquired. There are examples of this, examples of this happening at the time. And it makes a lot of sense when you consider the volatility of the regions and the importance of loyalty and trust. It's not a unique thing. In fact... The slaves probably would have known that this was a possibility, and they might have expected that their performance with the Minas would test whether or not they'd be found worthy to be elevated to govern a city. That's how common this was. That's how those hearing this story would have understood these slaves and their role, their position here. Although, you have to admit that ten cities is a lot of cities to be handed. Then again, taking $10,000, turning it into $100,000 is a pretty impressive feat, yet the master refers to it as a small thing. Certainly the disparity between the action and the reward is meant to impress us, right? It's meant to blow us away. Ten cities. But there's more. Another came saying, Master, here's your mina which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. Now what's he saying? What's he saying? What's he saying? He's saying, you know, you're kind of a jerk, actually. I don't feel very loved or supported by you. I didn't feel safe enough to risk making an investment. Because what if I lost money? I mean, you went away, and what? You wanted me to spend my life making money for you in a hostile territory while you were off hobnobbing with foreign dignitaries? And then you expect to waltz right back to... uh, be the king of a whole kingdom and ask, you to give, ask me to give you the fruit of my labor while you didn't lift a finger yourself. No. No, I'm not going to do that. Don't you understand how hard it is to be a slave? How hard it was to be a slave here with, in your absence with all the people hating you and hating us. Here, take what's yours. I kept it safe. Now leave me alone. 
To which the master responds, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank, and having come, I would have collected it with interest? Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. So what does the master do? He judges the worthless slave by his own standard. Being a good businessman, having done that, he takes the mina and he gives it to the one who's proven himself most faithful and most competent of creating a return. Despite the objections of everyone, master, that's not fair. Yeah, well, I don't care what you think is fair. My business is building my kingdom and making my kingdom grow. I want slaves who are fruitful. If you're fruitful, if you bring a return, you're going to be rewarded and you're going to be given more responsibility, more work. If you're faithful in little things, you'll be entrusted with larger things. And then he destroys his enemies before him. End of story. Kingdom established. So what do we make of this parable? It's really a picture for the disciples of the life they were about to face. Jesus wasn't going to Jerusalem to conquer the Romans. He was going to leave them, and he was going to claim his crown rights over earth. And they were going to be left responsible for working, for bearing fruit, for building his kingdom, until he returned with his reward in his hand for the righteous and his punishment for the rebels who would not have him be their king. And they would not have him be their king, would they? What did they say? We have no king but Caesar. Do not say that he is king of the Jews. Only say that he said he was king of the Jews. They made it very clear. They sent their delegation. We won't have him as our king. The application for the disciples was simple. It's going to be hostile. It doesn't matter when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Be patient. It's coming. Be patient. Make the most of the time. Spend yourself building God's kingdom. Take what I've given you and invest it. Pour yourself out. It doesn't matter how hostile the territory is. It doesn't matter how risky it is. He's coming back. He's bringing with him a reward for the righteous who have risked and who have invested and who have poured themselves out seeking to build his kingdom. And he's coming back with a vengeance for the wicked and the rebellious. And the same is true for us. There are four types of people in this story. The first is the master, and of course he represents Christ. He's going to get his rights to his kingdom. He's demanding obedience. He has commanded us to be fruitful He has commanded us to make disciples of all nations. And he wants a return on his investment. He will come to reward the righteous and to punish the wicked. The second person in this parable is the righteous slave. He's part of the master's household. He's close enough to the master to be entrusted with three months' wages to invest it in building the kingdom. 
He's by all appearances an industrious servant. In other words, he's a part of the church and he's in high standing. These righteous slaves obey the command. They take the master at his word. They take risks. They bear fruit. They endure hostility and persecution and suffering. They're loyal. They're committed servants of their master. And they're pleased to build his house. They love him. They want to see his kingdom grow. They want to see his house expand. They love their master. They don't care about themselves or their kingdom. They don't care about anybody else around them. They've been given a job to do. They love their Lord. They're going to pour themselves out for him. And they're excited to show themselves worthy of the trust he's placed in them in his absence. They're eager to come and show him the fruit that they've earned, the fruit of their labors. They live to please him, to hear from him, well done, good and faithful slave. Is that you? Do you live to pour out your life for God's kingdom? Do you live with your life on the altar? Do you invest what he's given you? Do you pour out the gifts he's given you in service to others, in service of his kingdom? How do you know? How does it show? Where is your life of service? Your conscience will tell you. Are you eager for his return? Do you long for him to come back? Do you look forward to the day he comes bearing his reward for the righteous and bringing vengeance for the wicked? Do you look for the day when he comes to set things right? There's another character in this story. It's the wicked slave. The wicked slave is, by all appearances, not that different from the righteous slave. He's a member of the master's household. He's in good standing. He's highly trusted. He appears to be industrious. In other words, he's a Christian, at least externally. He's part of the church. He has obligations to Christ to use his gifts to build his kingdom. But in the end... He proves disobedient. Forget his excuses. Focus on that. He's a slave. He's owned. He has orders. He has obligations. He was bought. He simply defies his orders. He refuses to obey. Why? Well, what he says is, you're an exacting man, you reap what you do not sow. You expect to get things without lifting a finger to do the work. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? What do you think it looked like to be the wicked slave? What do you think he did with himself instead of doing his job? What did his life look like? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us, and I think Jesus doesn't tell us because he means for us to fill in the blanks with what it looks like for us. There are lots of ways, lots of ways to be that wicked slave. There are lots and lots of ways to be that wicked slave. There are lots of ways to spend our, pas- our lives on our passions instead of on God's kingdom. In the parable of the talents, the master calls him lazy. Lazy often looks like idleness. 
It might be that you're a genuinely lazy person who will not lift a finger for anyone, much less for God. You sit around, you do your own thing, eating Skittles and playing video games and looking up advanced level sabermetrics so you can figure out how to optimize your fantasy baseball team. It more probably means that you're just content showing up, doing your own thing. How dare Jesus require you to bear fruit for his kingdom? You come to church, you go to small group, maybe even bring your kids on Wednesday nights, and isn't that enough? Life is short and hard at best, and church is a drag, and so are people, so is talking to people, so is confessing sin, so is taking care of kids, so is mowing grass, so is pulling weeds, so is loving my neighbor. Just give me baseball games and guitars and movies and go away. I'll go to church, but don't trouble me beyond that. Life is hard. That's one of two ways, one or two ways to be a wicked slave. But you know, laziness is rarely idleness. The laziest people I know, myself included, are the busiest people I know. Busy, 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 busy. Oh, I have so much to do, so much to do, so much to do. Oh, I have so much to do. I'm so busy. College students are all this way. Right? College students are the laziest people in our church. They all think they're the busiest people in the world. They think they're swamped to the max, every last one of them. And the truth is, we know... And I can say that I say this to them all the time, so don't be scandalized for them. Okay. We know that they've never had more free time than they have right now, and they never will again. Oh, but they're so busy. But you know, it might just as well be that that wicked slave was harder at work in the marketplace than his fellow slaves were. It might be that he was there doing what looked very much like his master's work. It might be that he was there investing money, buying, selling, trading, renting, only that he was out to get his own instead of his master's. Only he was out to do his own thing instead of build his master's kingdom. He took his, his master's talent and he set it over here in a basket, ranked it, wrapped it up in a handkerchief, set it over here. And uh, said, that's his. He's going away. I'll hang on to it over here in case he comes back and, you know, uh, the citizens don't rebel and kill him. And if he's looking for what I've got, I can just give that to him and tell him I was afraid to risk losing it. But here it is. I kept it safe and sound. Sorry, but you know how harsh you can be. And uh, hopefully that'll be enough for me to skate on by without him really noticing. I mean, he won't be happy, but how can he be angry? He got it back. I didn't lose it. I didn't spend it on myself. Instead of doing that work, I'm going to build a nice, comfortable living for myself over here. Keep this talent right here. I've got it, safe and sound. I'm going to spend my time and energy and effort over here building a kingdom, a comfortable living for myself. I'll do it honestly. I'll use my own resources. 
but I will not spend my time and my energy pouring out myself for someone else's kingdom who's not going to lift a finger to do the work himself, especially since everyone hates him. That's hard. It's too hard. It's too much to ask. Keep my talent over here private, locked up. I'm going to go build my own kingdom over here. I'm not going to risk leaving the house. In fact, while I'm secretly building this kingdom of my own, I've got extra, I have to do extra hard work to convince my peers I'm working for the master. It's a really easy thing to do, to build your own kingdom instead of God's and to convince other people that you're building God's. All you have to do is have the wrong motives. Whatever you think building God's kingdom looks like, you can imitate it. You can fake it. And you can do it for your own gain. That's what's going on in Jerusalem. That's what Jesus is, um, has been talking about. It's part of why he's telling this parable. He's going into Jerusalem, and the vultures, or the eagles, have gathered around the body. The money changers and Pharisees and Sadducees and priests are all there devouring the people of God, pretending to be building God's kingdom, but they're building their own kingdom. So whatever it is, whatever you think building God's kingdom looks like, you can imitate it. It's not hard. You think it means uh, preaching good, truth-packed sermons? It's easy to fake. Demons can do it. You can do it and make yourself look good and live off the praise of men. You think it means making converts to become captain evangelism? You can do that. The Pharisees were really good at making converts. Jesus says so. You think it means getting married and having lots of babies? That's easy. Anybody can do that. Muslims and Mormons are really good at it. All of those things are a part of how God's kingdom is built. But are you doing it for the right reasons? Are you actually building his kingdom? Some of you are building your own kingdom. You don't care about God's kingdom. You're just trying to do your own thing. But he is coming back. And he is going to summon you before his face. And he's going to demand his return on his investment. What will you do? What will you do? What will you say? Some of you are doing a good job hiding. You're blending in. You're doing the kinds of things that look like building God's kingdom, but it's really all about you. And he is coming back. And he will call you to give an account. And he will see right through you. What will you do? What will you say? There are some of you who are like the fourth person that we haven't even mentioned yet, just the open, open rebels. You don't care about him. You won't have him as your king. You don't care who knows it. He is coming. And he will slaughter you unless you repent. Unless you repent and trust him and become one of his faithful slaves. There is no running. He will come back. You will all stand before him. This is serious 
business. This is life and death and heaven and hell. And what you want to be are among those who, however falteringly or hesitantly, are pouring themselves out for their master in the midst of a hostile environment. Investing the gifts he's given you in the midst of a rebellious people, eagerly awaiting the day he returns, because he's coming. And he's not simply bringing vengeance with him, he's bringing a reward for those who have given their lives to his service. He's going to set all things to rights. And if you persevere to the end in faith, he will say to you, well done, good slave, well done. And that's what you want, to live for nothing less than his pleasure, to pour yourself out for his kingdom, to receive his commendation and reward. And if that's what you're living for, you have nothing to fear in this life. No man has anything on you. You don't have to be afraid of taking risks for his kingdom. Loving your neighbors and showing hospitality and being generous and confessing sin and caring for and serving one another. He will see to it that your work bears fruit. He will cause it to bear fruit. And he keeps track of everything that's done in secret. He will reward you. So repent now of all the little ways you hold on to your kingdom. All the little ways that you give yourself to building your own kingdom and commit and recommit yourselves to pouring out your life for his. It's only a little while. It's only a little bit of suffering. He will come back. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would prepare our hearts for your return. I pray that we would all love and long for your appearing. I pray that we would be faithful and diligent with the gifts you've given us, with the time that we have here. Father, give us grace to repent of our sin and our selfishness. Give us grace, Father, to turn from our wicked ways and to turn towards Christ, to embrace your promises by faith, and to live lives of obedience to your commands. Help us, Father, to bear fruit for the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.